Good morning. morning. Would you turn with me to Romans chapter 4, if you have your Bible with you this morning. Mitch is right, it's kind of, it's nice to see a, a large group here. I was at first wondering if you knew where you were, um, and then I remembered that we're raffling Mitch's motorcycle at the end of this service, so. <laughs> we're going to be in Romans chapter 4, and I will explain why in just a second. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, Lord, thank you for the opportunity to uh, stand before the people of God, and Lord, by your grace, seek to preach from your word. I thank you, Father, that that is uh, a responsibility of mine this morning, and Lord, is more daunting than it's ever been before. Because, Father, I I feel that in kindness you've given me a greater understanding of who you are, which gives me greater fear to stand in this place and open this book. And so, Heavenly Father, I, I pray that you would help me in my many weaknesses, and that, God, your spirit that indwells your people Father, you would rightly apply the truth of this passage. And Father God, that we would be a different people for having been here. Not checking a box with our, for our religious exam, but we want to know Jesus Christ. So I pray, Father, you would just speak to us now through your word. In Jesus' name, amen. So, I'm in Romans 4 this morning. I'm preaching through Genesis, and we're at chapter 21 in Genesis. My reason for being in Romans 4 this morning is because of the... Thanks, buddy. It's just water, right? Because of the New Testament's explanation of what what is going on with Abraham. So, if you would, look with me. Beginning at verse 18 in chapter 4. In hope, he believed against hope that he should become the father of many nations, as he had been told. So shall your offspring be. He did not weaken in faith when he considered his own body, which was as good as dead since he was about a hundred years old, or when he considered the barrenness of Sarah's womb. No unbelief made him waver concerning the promise of God, but he grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to God, fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. Now, I don't know the last time necessarily that you read through the Bible, the whole Bible, leather to leather, or cardboard to cardboard, whatever you're packing. As you read, as you read through that whole Bible... What always strikes me, one thing that strikes me almost every single time I I take usually a year and read through my Bible, is the continuity of the whole thing. The connectedness of all 66 books and themes that run clean through 
all 66. So we have 66 books, 40, over 40 different human authors, three different languages, all these variables that you would go, there's no way you'd find continuity in that. And yet, the more I study the Word of God, the more I go, man, I can't believe this and that are connected, but it's crystal clear that they are. And as I see the unity of Scripture, I believe that that is a clear testimony to the inspiration of the Word of God. The Spirit of God carrying the human authors to pen that which he wanted penned. An inerrant, inspired collection of 66 books given to us by grace. And so the reason I want to go to the New Testament this morning is because as we've been studying the Old, it's always interesting when God in his grace allows us a vantage point from a New Testament author inspired by God telling us perhaps a little bit more of what's being said back in that Old Testament text. The New Testament is the inspired interpretation of the Old Testament. The New Testament is the inspired interpretation of the Old Testament. I have no ears for someone that says, I like the Old Testament but not the New, or I like the New Testament but not the Old. I don't think that that's possible. In the, in the sense of what we're really dealing with here. Now, I realize it's possible people say that. Lots of people say that. The God of the Old Testament is, is wrathful and mean. The God of the New Testament is sweet and kind and basically Santa. And you read the Old and New Testament and you go, well, Ananias and Sapphira would beg to differ. And as you read through the scripture, you see, no, no, no. God is so incredibly merciful in the Old Testament scriptures. Good night. Just read what is done with Israel. How many times he should have squashed them and yet by grace redeems them and redeems them and protects them. God shows his mercy in fantastic ways all throughout Scripture. Now, as we've been studying the book of Genesis and we've seen what we've seen with this man Abraham, perhaps it's caused some of you to scratch your head a little bit because of some of the things he's done, which, as I've sought to argue week in, week out through this book with you, is that what that proves is that we are dealing with a true human being who makes mistakes, just like you, just like me, but a redeemed human being who is growing and maturing on this path. And so the Apostle Paul touches on this very thing in Romans chapter 4, and I thought, I can't go past this. I ended on this text last Sunday, and as I read it to you, I thought, I, I need another hour because this is too important. And so, no, this isn't going to be an hour, but this is too important. Let me show you the context that this text sits in. Look at verse 13 of chapter 4. The context, very simple, let me just give it to you really quick, is justification by faith and by faith alone. That's the context of the whole book of Romans, in particular here and in particular Abraham. Verse 13, for the promised Abraham and his offspring that he would be heir of the world did not come through the law, but through the righteousness of faith, for it is the adherent if it is the adherents of the law who are to be heirs, faith is null and the promise is void. For the law brings wrath, but where there is no law, there's no transgression. 
That is why it depends on faith. In order that the promise may rest on grace and be guaranteed, these are vital theological terms, guaranteed to all his offspring. Not only to the adherent of the law, but also to the one who shares the faith of Abraham. <clears throat> let, me, let me move just a little bit further. Um, who is the father of us all, as it is written, I have made you the father of many nations in the presence of the God in whom he believed, who gives life to the dead and calls into existence the things that do not exist. The gist of his argument here is very simple to grasp, but very hard to put into practice and truly live our lives out, that we are justified by grace through faith and not by works of the law. The law brings wrath. Why? Because you're bad. Because I'm bad. The law is not bad. The law is beautiful. David says, oh, how I love your law. I meditate on your law day and night. The law is a beautiful thing. It's the revelation of God's character. God's holy character is revealed in his Old Testament law. The tough part is that his law cannot be kept by a whole bunch of people who are lost in sin, dead in sins and trespasses. And so as Paul says in the book of Galatians, the law was given as a tutor, as a guardian, one that brings us to another point. What point? The point of recognition that we cannot be saved by our works that we can't be saved by our, our, our obedience. It is not that you, you die and then you go, okay, good works, bad works, and God says good works outweigh the bad works, so you're in. That is a fool's errand if that's the way you're living your life right now. If you think that you will throw God off by having a few good works to balance a few bad works, you are hell-bound and in need of perfect righteousness that you can't yet. And so Paul, in this context, is saying, guys, stop. Don't you get it? It's not the adherents to the law that are the heirs. It's those who are heirs by faith. Not only that, let me go a little bit further. Abraham himself was justified by faith. It was accredited to him as righteousness as he saw what God had called him to and walked in faith to it. Now, that's the, the context that this sits in. And then he kind of pulls back and does a little cameo of Abraham. And what he shares about Abraham here, I think, is very important and enlightening to our study that we've been doing in the book of Genesis. So look at verse 18 and the promise that's made. The promise that's made. In hope he believed against hope that he should become the father of many nations, as he had been told, so shall your offspring be. This points to the promises from God. Abraham was told he would, he would father nations. He was told all families of the earth shall be blessed in him. God called Abraham to leave it all. As he was a pagan worshiper in the Arab Chaldees, God came into his life, said, follow me. Follow me, Abraham. I'm going to show you a land. I'm going to make nations come from you. And from you, all peoples, all families will be blessed through you. And we're told very clearly that Abraham walked in obedience to the Lord. It makes me think about when, when he came to the disciples, the fishermen on the, on the beach and said, follow me. And it says they left their nets and they left everything and they followed him. 
I think far too often we want to give credit to the men for that act, but biblically speaking, that's an act of grace in God's life in them. Why do I say that? Because it is supernatural for somebody to walk away from their dead sins and trespasses and their passions and lusts and drop all of that and then follow the Lord. That's not something we talk another person into. That's a miraculous work of the Spirit of God in a life. Beloved, if you are a Christian seated here this morning, you are a, you are a testimony to the grace of the living God that he has made you alive in Christ. If you know him. Let me rephrase what I said. Because you may be seated here and not know him. If you are in Christ, you are a testimony. And so this promise that has been made, it says that he hoped against hope. This, this seems so outrageous, so far off, so difficult, so no way could this ever happen. But in faith, he walks in obedience to this promise. Now, let me show you him growing in faith. And this is really the hub of what I, wanna, what I want to pour out to you today. Verses 19 to 20. Look at verse 19. He did not weaken in faith when he considered his own body, which was as good as dead. I mean, (laughs) the Bible's given us some clarity here on where things are at with this man. Since he was about 100 years old, or when he considered the barrenness of Sarah's womb, no unbelief made him waver concerning the promise of God, but he grew strong in his faith, as he gave glory to God. Now, turn with me to Hebrews 11.1, 1, if you would, really quick. You probably have it memorized, um, uh, but let me, let me just read it for you real quick. Just one verse, and then we'll go, right, go back to Romans. Hebrews chapter 11, verse 1 says, Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for. The conviction of things not seen. Please notice, you guys, that it doesn't say the convictions of things that are not. It simply says the convictions of things that are not seen. Do they exist? Of course they exist. Just can't see it. An assurance of things that are hoped for. This is going to happen, and there are things that I can't necessarily see, and I'm utterly convicted about it. I'll live my life based on it. He did not weaken in faith this concept of weaken in faith, doubt God's word, or second-guessing God's word. Now, if you've been with us in the last few weeks of their study, my guess is right now you're going, yeah, he did. Remember Hagar? Remember when he lied and didn't trust that maybe she would be, uh, he, he and she would be, he and Sarah would be protected? He weakened in faith. Well, let me, let me give an argument here. Number one, this is what the Bible says, so you're wrong, and I'm wrong. So, I, and I mean that sincerely, the story's done. But nonetheless, I still have some questions and some curiosity in my mind as to, okay, but what, how can Paul say that? Well, I think one of the main um, pieces to understanding it is the word grew. Not perfection, 
Nowhere does it say that Abraham was a perfect man, but it says that he was growing in faith. I would argue that struggling faith and doubt are not the same thing. To see somebody struggle in their faith shows that they truly have faith and they're really wrestling with something. To see somebody that has doubt is somebody who goes, no, I don't think it's true. Nowhere in the text can you see Abraham say, I don't think God's promise is true. I don't see that anywhere in the text. Now it, I see perhaps some of his impatience. I see perhaps where he goes, man, maybe it's not Sarah, maybe it's Hagar, but I know it's his promise to me. And so as I went back and looked through this, I thought, I never once see him say, God can't do this and God won't do this. I just see him truly, honestly saying, God, I'm struggling a little bit right now. Let me read a quote. Um, John MacArthur was helpful. <clears throat> this, this, he's helpful every week, but he's helpful this week. It says, but struggling faith is not doubt, just as temptation to sin is not itself sin. The very fact that Abraham was trying to understand how God's promise could be fulfilled indicates he was looking for a way of fulfillment, although he could not yet see a way. Weaker faith might have simply succumbed to doubt. Sincere struggling with spiritual problems comes from strong, godly faith. I love that statement. Such faith refuses to doubt and trust in God's promises, even when no way of fulfillment is humanly imaginable. God's testing of his children's faith is designed to strengthen their trust, and they should thank him for it, hard as it seems to be at times. So the simple point is I, don't, I think that the Apostle Paul is not in error here. If I said that, this would be my last day in this pulpit because I believe this is the inspired word of God. I believe what the apostle is touching on here is that this man truly had a genuine faith. He was counted righteous after all, remember? But is it possible, beloved, that we saw him actually wrestle a bit with this true faith that he had? You ever been there? Ever? I'm sure you have. And not only that, but let me um, just pile this on for you. Let's remember some of the apparent circumstances going on in this man's life. His wife is barren and has been their entire marriage. She's incapable of having kids. He is now a hundred, almost 100 years old. He has, only, he has not seen any scrap of evidence that she's going to have a child. When he attempted to, perhaps Hagar is the one where the child of promise will come from, that crash and burn. And at some, at, in chapter 17, he eventually says, perhaps my servant is going to be the heir, because I'm not sure what, Lord, how you're going to do this. Again, that is a very different thing than saying, God, you can't do this, when somebody says, God, I'm not sure how you're going to do this. That's how true faith thinks. A true, genuine believer with true, genuine faith, they ask questions of God genuinely. Not snidely, not trying to come at him and, sh and be sharp at him, but saying, God, I truly, in my human way of thinking, can't see how you're going to do this, but I totally trust you how you're going to do it. Now we're talking to a believer, in my opinion. Now we're talking to a Christian. 
But the apparent circumstances, Sarah is barren. Sarah is far, far beyond childbearing years now. Abraham is nearly 100 years old. And year after year after year of waiting, waiting and waiting and waiting. I, I hate waiting. And I don't know about you, but some of the, some of, it, it's interesting, beloved, that some of the finest tuning God does in our lives is in the waiting, and some of the strongest temptations against us is in the waiting. All Abraham had to show, now think about this with me, the only thing this man had to go on was God's word. That's all he had. Now, emphasis added, you see what I'm doing there, all he had was the word of the sovereign king of the universe, the promise of Almighty God. But, beloved, isn't it interesting at times how the promises of God can look so small and crazy circumstances can look so big? God's word of promise to him is what he was banking on. Even in the midst of circumstances that would cause the majority of people in this world, unsaved people, to say, this is a crazy man. Oh, God told you. You're almost 100 years old. Your wife's been bearing this entire time. She's far beyond childbearing years. And it's just been year after year after year. Do you realize how stupid you look, Abraham, to this watching world right now? Right, goes right back to Noah. You're, well, let me get this straight. You want to build a boat in the desert because there's a flood coming? Did I, am I hearing you correctly? How many years are you going to work on this thing? Beloved, there, there comes a time in the life of believers where your obedience to the word will make you look like an absolute fool to this watching world. If we had a hundred-year-old man this morning walk in here and tell us that he was going to be a father in a year or two, we would all be scratching our heads just a little bit. And yet... The scripture says, this man did not waver in faith. He did not weaken in faith. Yes, he struggled. Yes, he grew in his trust of God, uh, progressively growing in his trust in the Lord. How, Dan, how could you make that argument? Well, I plan on making it in a couple of weeks, but let me just give you a, a, a hint. This man is about to be asked to take the life of the child of promise he's been waiting for this entire time. And guess what? He he does it. Now, he doesn't take the life, but he does it. Before God, in his mind, in his faith, he does it. Would he have done that back in chapter 12 when the Lord called him out? I don't think so. I think the Lord kindly and graciously is carrying this man along and growing him in his faith. And so Abraham did not weaken in faith. He continually trusted in God's promise. He had lots of questions how the Lord was going to do it. Now, isn't that true for you, for me, that we go, no, I believe that's what God's Word says. I'm a believer. I believe the Bible. I, I believe that's what he's going to do. How's he going to do it? I don't know, because that's crazy. It would take an, a, an act of God. To, oh, that's right. <laughs> he focused on the God of the promise. If you look down at the passage, this is, this is so... Precious. This is precious, precious truth. 
He did not weaken in faith when he considered his own body, which was as good as dead since he was about 100 years old, or when he considered the barrenness of Sarah's womb. No unbelief made him waver concerning the promise of God, but he grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to God, fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. This is the this is the real punch of the text. Is it wasn't that he was saying, how am I going to do this? He was saying, I trust God can do this. It's not Abraham. It's not Abraham saying, man, I hope I'm good enough, strong enough to do this. The focus was not the circumstances of Abraham. The focus was the power of the living God. And so with his eyes ablaze, looking to God's power, God's sovereignty, and God's might, he didn't waver. He didn't spend a whole lot of time in the mirror going, man, I don't know how I'm going to do this. I, he, he knew, I can't do this. Christianity strips pride from each of us. It, 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 it rushes us and takes away all that arrogance of that thought of, I can do this, it's about me, I have the strength. God will so kindly strip away your strength to show his might. He has done it over and over again in the scripture and in lives of his people. He will take away your strength at times to remind you of the sweetness of his presence and of his strength and power in your life. I'm reminded of that periodically when I get sick. Because I don't like being seated. I don't like having to just hold still per se. I like to be out and about and doing things. And periodically when I get sick, the thought comes across my mind, the Lord at this moment is taking me out of commission. And that's grace. What did you call it, Mitch? Force recreation? Something like that. Yeah, it didn't feel like it. <clears throat> There are times where God in his grace will make us weak to show his strength. That's all I'm getting at. And so Abraham grew strong as he gave glory to God, glorifying God in the time of waiting. This is where he does his finest tuning. This is where the world takes notice. The world doesn't care if you're happy and wealthy at all. Good for you. The Christian, some of the Christianity in America are so foolish to think that if we make ourselves look healthy and rich, the world will be interested in our gospel. That is a lie from the pit of hell. That is an absolute lie. The world doesn't care that you're rich. Okay, you found Jesus to make yourself rich. They found the stock market. Good for you and good for me. Now we're all rich. That's a lie. What the world doesn't know what to do, they, what, what they don't know how to handle, is when the person is in the strongest fight of their life and they say, I know God's in this. I know the Lord is strong in this. I know that he has some awesome plan in the midst of this pain. So it'll be okay. And I don't mean lying. I mean, when a believer truly says that from their depths of their soul, God is in control of this horrific situation, the world looks at that and says, I don't know what to do with that. But if we think that our wealth and our comfort is going to make the world want our gospel, you are believing a lie. It does not work like that. That's why it's always interesting when they 
Sometimes you'll see them take a celebrity who professes to be a Christian and they put him in front of the world and they say, look, celebrities are Christians, so don't you want to be a Christian? No. Biblically speaking, I'm dead in sins and trespasses. Why on earth would I want to be a Christian? I want nothing to do with him. I'm a backbiter, hater of God. There's no one who does good. No, not one. No one seeks after God. Why do, who cares if you have a celebrity who's a Christian? It takes a miraculous work of the Spirit to make a Christian, not some theatrical trick from some evangelist. Where was I? <laughs> so does this mean that Abraham did all things perfectly? Of course not. No, no, and I, please don't hear me, beloved. I'm not, I'm not saying that. By no means, but he was continually being shaped and molded by God throughout his life. The power of this whole thing is found in the one who made the promise, not just the promise. If I make a promise to you that I'll hand you a million bucks next Sunday, I can almost promise you that I'll break that promise. But when the one who makes the promise has absolutely perfectly kept every single promise ever made by that individual, their word's pretty good. Their word's pretty, pretty good. And so Abraham, we're told, looked to the Lord. Not to Abraham and not to his circumstances. He looked to the living God, and that's where his faith rested. That's where his trust came from. Abraham was righteous by faith. The law was never intended to make one righteous. Now, if you look at verse 22, try to wrap this up really quick. Verse 22, that is why his faith was counted to him as righteousness, but the words it was counted to him were not written for his sake alone, but for ours also. It will be counted to us who believe in him who raised from the dead Jesus our Lord, who was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. Simply put, this is the bridge that the New Testament authors make continually from Abraham to us as believers. Father Abraham had many sons. I am one of them, and so are you. We are, we are under the father of faith. Abraham was not justified by works of the law. When God called him out and called him unto himself, that was by grace through faith, just as it is for us. And so I think it's amazing that the Apostle Paul, the inspired interpreter of the Old Testament, makes this claim that just as Abraham was justified and righteous by faith, so is everybody. The adherents to the law, meaning the Jews, but also the Gentiles. Absolutely everybody. There is one way to be righteous before God. The only way you will ever be righteous before God is by faith in Jesus Christ and his work on the cross. And when you place your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and his death on the cross, his resurrection, his ascension, his return, and you take that, you make that your own, and you lay your life down to him as Lord and follow him as your master, you are declared righteous in Christ. In Christ. If there's two words that are so vital to your Bible, it is in Christ. Are you in Christ? If you are outside of Christ, you have no righteousness. You have no reason to tell anybody you're a Christian if you are outside of Christ. You're not a Christian because you're in this building. You're not a Christian because your grandma was. You're not a Christian because you wear the right, right clothes or you vote for the right thing. Or None of that declares you Christian. 
You are a born-again believer by grace through faith in Jesus Christ alone. Just as Abraham was. And so I think it's marvelous to go back and read that and see this man is just like Dan. He's growing in his faith. Let me close with this. Two points of application just to think about. Here's a phrase that I hear in our world, and I'm sure you hear too. I'm a person of faith. You ever heard that? Raise your hand if you've ever heard that said. Okay. Next time you hear that, in a very genuine, kind-hearted way, ask them, in what? Because when you attach faith, or when you detach faith from anything, it's nonsensical. So when somebody says, I'm a person of faith, in what? I I have faith right now that this thing's going to hold me. No, a little doubt, but most of the time, I know who built this, so I... (laughs) That question of in what, beloved, is the answer to it all. See, the, the funny part is the world wants to play religion, and so they say, I'm a person of faith, and they get a pass. No, no pass. In what? And then if you really want to get it spiced up, in who? In who? Who is the object of that faith? Who is it? Because if it's you, if it's your good works, if it's some mystical thing, if it's the god of the trees or the ocean or the moon god or whatnot, Your faith is null and void, and there is no salvation there whatsoever. The object of the faith is the most important piece, not the faith. I have faith in chairs when I sit in them. I have faith when I take a sip of coffee that I won't die from this cup of coffee. We act in faith all the time. Those are all objects of faith to some level, but ultimately, beloved, that's not the question we're asking. We're asking, do you have faith in Jesus Christ? And then secondly, how do we grow our faith? Because I think our faith grows. I think, it, I think it progressively matures, as I've seen that with Abraham. Here's a list, and then I'll pray. A knowledge of the truth. Pour over the word. Just pour over the word. Drink deep from the wells of the scripture. Master your Bibles, Christians. Master it, and be mastered by it. Ask God. Ask him to grow your faith as you pour in the truth. Struggle in your experience. Ask questions of the Lord. He's not intimidated by you. Pose the questions to him when you struggle with how he's going to do this or do that. Look at history. Read a good biography. Look at how God has acted in the past. Beloved, that will so strengthen your faith when you see his faithfulness to his church throughout the centuries. Every now and again, hold yourself up in a comparison to the failing world system and the stupidity of fallen man seeking to chase his own tail and get his own glory. And lastly, the vital support of the church body. My faith has grown because of you, because of what God has done in you, 
because what he's doing in you, how you have stood faithful by his grace in the midst of dire circumstances, you have strengthened your pastor's faith by your obedience to Christ. We need each other, beloved. I know that church is not popular and is getting a bad name in so many ways in our culture, but let me just remind you, from the Word of God, you are a gift to you. You are grace to one another. That God would do a work in us that can only be done in this place. Let me pray. Father, thank you for your Word. I plead with you, Lord God, you'd help us not to weaken in our faith, but to be strengthened and to grow in our trust in the promises because of the God of the promise. And that, Lord, the object of our faith, the glorious, magnificent Godhead, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, Lord, that we would be in awe. And dear God, that our cup would be so full that we could not but share with those that come in contact with us, Lord. This dead, lost world that is in desperate need of the Lord Jesus. So, Father, I pray that you would challenge the saints, strengthen the saints, equip the saints, and then, Lord, put us to work. For Jesus' name, I pray. Amen.